for humans, if we take care of ourselves, if we promote our wellness and our health, we don't need antibiotics as much, right? We're not going to get infections. We'll get them less often. The same principle apply to animals. And so I think we really need to sort of step back and look at the systems and understand why are animals getting sick or why do they need antibiotics? And let's change the system so they don't. The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better, more sustainable future? Introducing Control-Alt-Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs, who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode of Control-Alt-Meat is with Dr. Lance Price a professor at the George Washington University's Milken Institute School of Public Health and the founding director of GW's Antibiotic Resistance Action Centre. Dr. Price works at the interface between science and policy to address the growing crisis of antibiotic resistance. His research, Retracing the Ecology, Evolution and Epidemiology of Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, has been published in top peer-reviewed journals and covered in media outlets around the world. In this episode, we discuss why Lance thinks antibiotic resistance is the biggest public health crisis facing the world, why it's linked to our current food system, and we discuss his solutions for how we can try and fix it and avoid a public health crisis. I hope you enjoy the episode. Lance, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Lance, I'd love for you to quickly explain for listeners what antimicrobial resistance is and the scale of the problem at the moment. I like to think of it in terms of antibiotic resistant or antimicrobial resistant pathogens, right? So there are these microbes that infect us, cause diseases and our best medicines for those are what we call antimicrobials. And most of us are familiar with the term antibiotic, right? So antibiotics, you can be given one in a pill pill form or as an injection, and they specifically kill bacterial infection that you have without killing you. Those are the good ones anyway. And those were discovered in the 1930s by, first one was discovered by Alexander Fleming. And then we've had a whole series of them since then that have been introduced to medicine. And what has happened though, is that because of our overuse and misuse and frankly, abuse of of antibiotics over the years, the bacteria, the pathogens have have evolved mechanisms to overcome the effects of the antibiotics. So that's when we start using this term antibiotic resistance. And and when we get bacteria uh, that are resistant to three, four, five, six, you know, like 20 different antibiotics, we start to call them superbugs, right? Because these are the super pathogens that are resistant to almost everything we can treat them. And just going back in time a little bit to the way you you grew up, you started growing up on a Texas ranch, right? Did this upbringing kind of shape your interest in this or what changes have you seen since your early childhood in this space? Yeah, so I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, out west, and, and but my family had a cattle ranch in central Texas. And, and so we would leave the dry heat of Arizona for the moist, <laughs> humid heat of Texas every summer. And, and, you know, it was a small ranch and we'd raise cattle and And, you know, I had a pretty idealized view of what ranching or farming was. But just next door on the next property, there was a a dairy farm that started off as a small family dairy. And over the years, they just 
they sort of bought into this mantra of get big or get out, you know, which is industrialize your system where you're not going to make it. And that's sort of probably economically true. It was really pretty transformative to the environment. I watched, you know, this can't say pristine because agricultural land, but still it was, it was quiet, peaceful agricultural land turned into what looked like an industrial wasteland where you had all of these animals crammed together. You know, the grass is gone. There's just, they're being fed uh, grains and who knows what else in their feed and, and uh, on being milked on a 24 hour clock. And so it really changed the, the landscape. And then there were a series of droughts as well, but you know, the water table started dropping and we knew that they were drawing a lot of water. And so I think I just got firsthand this experience of what the industrialization of animal production looks like. And then I studied microbiology in college and I started understanding antimicrobial resistance and uh, I started learning about antibiotic use in animals. And I was shocked by the widespread use of antibiotics to make animals grow faster. That's the most abusive use, right? Something about antimicrobial growth promotion, but also just sort of routine disease prevention. Like, ah, these animals get sick predictably the way that we raise them. Yeah. And instead of changing it, let's just give them antibiotics. So it, it was that really struck me and, and stuck with me. And I directed my career to studying and you've said in the past that it's one of mankind's greatest public health threats above things like terrorism. Can you explain why this is such a big threat? You said as well that, you know, this microbial resistance is like a time machine taking us back to 1928. Why yeah. have you drawn that kind of um, picture? Well, I think it's hard to overstate the importance of antibiotics to human medicine. This class of drugs is the foundation for the way we practice medicine today. Everything from, think about chemotherapy, right? So when you're giving somebody chemotherapy, it's not an antibiotic, but if you don't have good antibiotics, that patient will likely die of a, a secondary infection or an infection that they get while their immune system is being shot by these chemicals, right? So mm -hmm. when you're treating the cancer, you're, you're going to have a poisonous effect on the whole body and they're going to be susceptible to these infections. So really expensive chemotherapies only really save lives when they have antibiotics with them. Cesarean sections, hip replacements, you know, prostate biopsies, all of these procedures that we do today, we really need antibiotics to support those procedures. And so if you think about now the evolution of bacteria that are resistant to most, and in some cases, all of our antibiotics, then these common procedures start to become really risky again. I mean, they would have been risky 80 years ago, uh, 90 years ago, but because of antibiotics, they were, you know, less risky. We've also had other advancements in medicine, obviously, but, um, but it does throw us back, not completely, but it throws us back to some of the risks that we had, you know, before Alexander Fleming discovered antibiotics. Yeah, it's crazy. So all this medical innovation, which should make these procedures safe and, and you know, routine and now being threatened and, and a lot as safe as before. It's crazy. And I think you said something like around half of infections picked up in hospitals are basically in some way resistant to antibiotics. Oh, careful reminding me of everything that I've said. <laughs> <laughs> I know that nearly half of the antibiotics used in hospitals are unnecessary. That may be the conflating two quotes, but um, I'm not sure what proportion of infections are, are resistant to some antibiotics versus really resistant to nearly all. But we're definitely, in the U.S. anyway, misusing antibiotics in human medicine and, as I know you're interested in, animal production. 
Yeah, and so on animal production, if it's estimated to kill 700,000 people a year, this antimicrobial resistance, why isn't there more regulation around the overuse of antibiotics when it comes to giving these to animals rather than humans, for example? Well, you know, it really depends on where you are in the EU, the UK. You've made a lot of progress in terms of restricting unnecessary antibiotic use, at least on paper. When you look at how it's implemented across the EU, it's not it's not perfectly implemented. It's It's you know, done best probably in the northern countries and then gets worse as you go south. And then the U.S., we've had uh, we've had more incremental change. I, I think that the FDA has over the last 20 years taken these really nuanced steps to, to restricting some of the most important antibiotics, but and including, at least on paper, the voluntary withdrawal of growth promotion claims. So just a couple of years ago, they successfully got the labels for, you know, giving animals antibiotics to make them grow faster. They got that out of the, out of the feed, but we, we see evidence that that, con- that practice continues. They just call it something else. And the microbes don't care what you call it, right? You know, if they're being exposed to antibiotics all the time, then that's a problem. So why haven't we done more? I mean, I think that, that you've got influence of very powerful industries, right? So you have um, drug companies, which are some of the you know, powerful companies in the U.S. and then, and globally, and then you've got the food animal producers, right? And yeah. and the U.S. has. I, I'm sorry, I'm focusing on the U.S. because that's what I know, but uh, I know more about the political system here. And we are the mo- one of the most egregious users in terms of you know quantities of antibiotics per quantity of meat produced. Yeah. And, and so I usually use that as an example, but here we have an interesting form of corruption of the political system too. And in some countries, particularly some of the low and middle income countries, you'll have, you know, literally bags of cash exchange for, for political favors. And that probably still happens here to some degree, but I think the bigger sort of more insidious corruption is, you know, this this need to have everybody around the table, you know, so we're going to have for every, for every policy decision, we're going to bring in, you know, every stakeholder and we're going to give them equal voice, right? And so, you know, a drug company that has this financial incentive to continue to sell drugs, they're going to have, they're always going to have one opinion about this. And food animal producers are, are very politically savvy, these big companies. And, and, and so they really influence the process. And so I think that's why it, it continues today. But I will say we've made a fair bit of progress in terms of protecting the most important drugs, but we're still using more than 30 million pounds of antibiotics, pounds, 30 million pounds of active ingredient. These aren't pills, but those little powders of antibiotics in animals each year. So there's a big loophole, which is routine disease prevention. It's a, a huge problem in terms of its scale. But there's been some positive developments in terms of organizations like KFC and Chipotle and Panera Bread committing to antibiotic-free processes with their food. How positive do you feel about these commitments? Do they have teeth? I think the consumer and the investor are the teeth, right? So if companies are found to not actually be following through, we have to vote with our money, right? Because that's that's really what they respond to. I don't see a strong regulatory environment here to enforce these promises. I feel like our best label out there now is something called no antibiotics ever and or, you know, no antibiotics ever or raised without antibiotics. It's a whole sort of group of U.S. Department of Agriculture backed labels. 
But I don't see that regulatory infrastructure behind those labels to be particularly strong. The claims are good, but I think more could be done to tighten up how they're verified. And then you have companies like McDonald's making, you know, coming out with really what looks like on paper, really good policy statements as far as progressive moves towards reducing antibiotics and cattle production. But, you know, we're still waiting for the follow through on that. And understandably, COVID has disrupted a lot of stuff. But we really want to see these companies following through. And, and transparency is the key, right? So consumers can't vote with their dollars unless they know what's going on. So we have to shed light on what's actually going on, not just what somebody puts on paper for their policy. Yeah. And you've done some, I'd, I'd like to come to COVID in a second, but you've done some amazing work in, in trying to change government policy as well. I know that you in 2004 testified in front of the Obama administration at the White House. Could you talk a little bit about what you were trying to do and, and what that resulted in? Well, I, you know, I've, I've done a few of these over my career. You know, I've done uh, congressional briefings and hearings and then, you know, um, spoke to that White House panel gathering information on this. And I think, you know, my take home point is always the same, which is that it's a complex problem. On some levels, this is a very complex issue, right? They've got all kinds of different resistant pathogens. You know, each one has its own ecology. You have uh, mobile resistance genes. So these bacteria are exchanging genes. These genes can go around the world. Could you explain for listeners what that is? Sorry, mobile resistant genes. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. So uh, so bacteria can become resistant to uh, antibiotics by a few different major mechanisms, but it always comes down to changes in the DNA. And so when they're replicating their DNA to bacteria don't have sex, that they, but they actually make copies of themselves. So they'll make a copy of all their DNA. So they make copies of all the G's, A's, T's, and C's in their genome, right? And that E. coli genome has like, you know, four and a half million of those, right? So they make copies and sometimes they'll make errors and sometimes those errors make them resistant to antibiotics. The other thing they can do, which is really, I don't know if it's ingenious, but it's challenging for us is that they can make copies of specific pieces of DNA, including resistance genes. So genes that make them resistant to antibiotics and they can, they can sort of package them up and pass them off to other bacteria, right? And so you can have epidemic spread of drug-resistant bacteria, specific bacteria, but you can also have epidemics of resistance genes, right, that are spreading among different kinds of bacteria. And so the problem is amplified in many different ways. But it, coming back to the policy and the main message is that it all is driven, though, by drug use. So the more we use antibiotics, and particularly in uncontrolled ways in people and in animals, we fuel the evolution of these bacteria. And so we, we have to think about it ecologically, right? So I can't quantify what percentage of the infections that are in people, the drug-resistant infections in people that are due to antibiotic use in animals or antibiotic use in people. They fuel each other, right? And I really think that a lot of these bacteria that are resistant to these antibiotics, they're mosaics of genes that they pick up from these different environments, right? So they pick these things up and they create these poker hands that are unbeatable, right? So you have Royal Flush. Some of these guys are running around with all the cards they need to beat all the drugs that we have. But meanwhile, the more we use antibiotics, we're sort of just <laughs> flipping these cards all around to them and, and, and helping them build these hands. And so you've been sharing these insights and urging for more um, government action. And there was a national action plan that was developed off the back of one of your presentations. How has that, um, what's been the success of that so far? Do you know? Well, I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty disappointing. And I guess maybe that's 
<laughs> I'm not taking credit for the progress or the disappointment, but maybe I wasn't convincing enough. But um, they were very quantitative in terms of having reduction goals for antibiotic use in human medicine and, and, and timelines for achieving those goals. And with the animals, they were like, oh, let's see what this new policy does. They were already on the path of getting rid of the growth promotion, the most egregious use of antibiotics, or at least in name, they were getting rid of it. And essentially, they were saying, well, let's, let's see how well that works. And they left in place this giant loophole, which is this loophole that allows food animal producers to give animals antibiotics based on a calendar or a clock to prevent diseases. And, and so it's very easy for them to justify using antibiotics almost exactly how they were using them to make the animals grow faster. So it's in some ways a failure, but the FDA's incremental changes over time have been promising. Promising. And so turning to the dreaded COVID, but it's important for us to talk about this. We've had a year or almost two years now where public health has been front and center. What do we need to do now that we have this attention on this, um, on the food system to try and step up our action on AMR? Yeah, I mean, I think, I hope that one of the take homes is that it's been so politicized, it's, it's hard to know, you know, whether we've made progress or not. I mean, sadly, at least here. Uh, and I guess in the UK too, you know, you in varying degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Public health has been politicized, which is sad, but I think there's a renewed recognition of the importance of infectious diseases. There's also important, there's at least for some, this understanding the interface between animals and humans is important, right? So even if the COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 came from, uh, you know, the, the lab, in Wuhan. Maybe that, maybe that's true. Who knows? I mean, we'll, I guess we'll learn someday, but the the evolutionary trees clearly show that this was a a bat virus to begin with, right? So maybe it was manipulated or maybe they were just trying to understand it and then it escaped. Who knows? Or maybe it jumped from a bat to an intermediate animal, like we thought initially, and, and then jumped to people in wet markets. Either way, it shows the potential threat of these, what we call zoonotic pathogens, these bacteria and viruses. And obviously this is a virus that we're talking about right now, but the, when it comes to antimicrobial resistance, we're usually talking about bacteria, right? But what we know is that the animals are a potential source of new and variant forms of infectious diseases. And that can be wild animals, but it can also be domesticated animals that we cram together and then give them antibiotics, which fuels the growth of untreatable bacteria, right? So, so one of the big challenges with COVID-19 was that was new, right? We've never seen it before. We don't have vaccines and we don't have medicines. We don't have things to treat the infection. That's a big challenge, right? Well, what are we doing in the meantime? We are generating the, we're, we're fueling the evolution of new variant forms of bacteria, maybe bacteria that we already know about that are resistant to our best medicines. So it was hard not to just want to, for me as an infectious disease person, as a microbiologist, you know, to not want to sort of jump totally on the COVID-19 bandwagon and get into this. But I knew that at the end of COVID-19, if there is an end, you know, that we're still going to be dealing with drug resistant pathogens and we can't lose focus on the importance of, of those infections. And then we also predicted probably correctly was that, that this scramble to deal with these infections in the hospital was going to lead to a lot of overuse of antibiotics and hospitals, you know, to prevent, you know, ventilator associated pneumonias. So that put on more selective pressure for the evolution of bacteria in humans too, right? So it's still a big mess. But I think the other thing that we have recognized, you know, one of the big, while politicization has hurt 
public health some ways, uh, in many ways, I think there's a renewed value or recognition of the value of vaccines, right? And vaccines are another way we can prevent bacterial infections and obviate the need for antibiotics. And so this is all part of stewardship, preventing infections. Mm, So that's something that you feel hopeful for uh, off the back of this, basically. Yeah. yeah, but you touched on it a little bit, sort of this trend of kind of, well, not trend, but practice of sterilizing our spaces and social distancing. Um, this is something that, you know, could um, extend past COVID-19. It could be something that becomes more permanent. Do you see that as a bit of a worry, this shift of behavior, because we become more sort of, I guess, sterilized? I saw a lot of people were using hand sanitizers before. I think alcohol-based hand sanitizers are not a real risk for for resistance. It's the medicated soaps are. Uh, those are a real problem. I think we're all, you know, for that little that little glimpse of hope when we all thought maybe COVID was going away and we all got to take our mask off again. It was so nice, you know, and so I don't see those becoming permanent structure, but it would be nice if people started wearing them when they had colds and, and flus, right? Because mm. it'd be great if we could have in the future prevent the spread of flus and Flu kills a lot of people every year yeah, too, right? And absolutely. colds are annoying. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not too worried about the impact on the microbiome and what are we doing? I'm not too worried about that. And Lance, you often use humor as a way to communicate your ideas and reach audiences. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you've gone down that approach and does it does it work for you? Oh, I mean, some people think it's humor. <laughs> I don't know. Not everybody gets my jokes, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to diffuse the science, right? Because I want people to understand some basics. Because if you just understand how bacteria evolve and how quickly they evolve and the powerful evolutionary force that antibiotics have that they present, if you can get people to understand that, then things like Hey, giving, you know, 30 million pounds of antibiotics to animals to, to make them grow faster or to prevent diseases, it becomes intuitive that that's a bad idea, right? But the problem is if I lead out the gate with microbiological terms, then most people are going to say, that's something I don't understand, right? It's just an automatic response. Like when Jeremy and others start talking about these investment structures, I, I glaze over because I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't really understand that. And so if they lead off with technical language and they get right into it, then I'm going to, I'm going to tell myself, I, I can't understand. I'll, I'll pay attention to something else. And so I try to take people off guard a little bit with humor and, you know, I'm not that funny. Right. So, uh, you know, sometimes it falls flat, but I think even a flat attempt can say, all right, well, he's a human that makes stupid jokes. So uh, maybe I can listen to this person, right? Maybe if I can reveal to them that I'm definitely not smarter than anybody else in the room, then they're going to say, oh, this is somebody that I can listen to. I guess that's the attempt. And then, you know, we're trying to do more of this through social media as well. Just it's almost like the Mary Poppins thing, right? A little spoonful of sugar, right? And just to, you know, if we could just chip away a little bit with each one of these little videos that we're doing. We're doing one right now on Alexander Fleming. And and, and we've been working with this comedian who's, I think, funny. And his name's Robert Mack. And, and if he can sort of, with each little episode that we do, if he can just convey a little bit of information, we can start bringing up the, the knowledge base for people or their, their general understanding of antimicrobial resistance. Like I said, some of these things can become intuitive. Yeah, because it's it could be both overwhelming um, and a little bit depressing if you look at the numbers. So if there's a way that you can make it more approachable and I guess accessible, then that's that's a good thing. Sometimes we get lost in the joke though. And we're like, 
I, I realized afterwards, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure we conveyed anything of value there. And uh, <laughs> so that's always a balance, right? But but yeah. uh, that was a pretty funny episode, though. But uh, what did we teach them? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's always right. that struggle. And then just moving forward and thinking about what you feel optimistic or excited about, there are some... I guess, really innovative research projects that are searching for new routes for a sort of post-antibiotic future. What's the sort of highlights of these? What are you excited about here? Well, I mean, one of the things that we're working on in our group is trying to understand your body's sort of natural defenses, right? So there's something called the human microbiome. That's this, we're walking ecosystems of microbes, right? We've got good and mostly good microbes living in and on us. And, and on a cell-to-cell basis, we're probably at least even numbers, if not outnumbered by our microbes. And we know that all microbes don't get along, right? And so we're trying to we're trying to understand, you know, understanding the microbes that live in and on the body and, and which ones can nudge out the bad guys, right? So act as almost like the bouncer in the bar, all right, you out of here. And, um, and so maybe a combination of, you know, when somebody's going in for a particular procedure, you know, sur- surgery that might make them at risk for staph aureus or staph aureus infection, if we can find out that they're colonized, then maybe we can treat them with a probiotic mixture of bacteria that can nudge out the staff, and then they'd be less at risk of picking up an infection later. Also, as we think about really resistant strains of E. coli that can, and Klebsiella and, and the related bacteria that can live in our guts, as they move towards what we call pan-resistant, resistant to all antibiotics, you know, we need to find alternative ways to, to decolonize people, to get rid of the guts and, and get out of our guts. And so that's another way that we're thinking is that probiotics could be helpful. And then, as I mentioned before, I'm very excited about the renewed focus on vaccines and preventing some of the bacterial infections that are that are becoming most resistant. So can we vaccinate against can we vaccinate against really resistant strains, you know, of gonorrhea or, or TB or salmonella or even the kind of E. coli that cause urinary tract infections? That's an area that we should focus on. Amazing. Thank you, Lance. Some really rich insights there. And if you could sort of give one or two key takeaways in particular related to the food system that you'd want listeners to take away from this conversation, what do you think they would be? Well, you know, I think we need to be raising animals in a way that promotes their health, not that makes them sick and requires a regular input of antibiotics. So let's think about the health of the animals. I mean, you know, whether we're producing them for meat or milk or other products, I mean, we do have a lot of animal production, right? And, you know, an absolutist would say it just has to go away, but I mean, I'm, I consider myself a harm reductionist, right? So we, we have to look at the system that we have and let's try to make it as, as healthy as possible, right? And, and it's clear that for humans, if we take care of ourselves, if we promote our wellness and our health, we don't need antibiotics as much, right? We're not going to get infections. We'll get them less often. The same principle will apply to animals. And so I think we really need to sort of step back and look at the systems and understand why are animals getting sick or why do they need antibiotics? And let's change the system so they don't. And maybe that means more space. Maybe that means cleaner environments. Maybe that means more enriched environments, you know, acting more like an animal and uh, certainly cleaner. Then think about vaccines and probiotics and things like that for, for the health of the animals. So we can ask for those things, but how do we drive it? And I think, you know, one of the things that FAIR does is that, you know, if you can get investors to think about these things, 
when they're building their portfolios, I think that that's important. So now we're at the extent of my understanding of investment, but I, I do think that that's important. And then one of the main take homes then is that we need to be better consumers of medicine and of food, right? So we vote with our dollars at grocery stores and we look for responsible antibiotic use. So companies with really good policies, really clear policies, and that are open to third-party verification is really important. And then when we're consuming medicine, right, when we go to the doctor, that we shouldn't demand antibiotics. No matter how socially engaged we are when we're sick or when our kid is sick or our puppy is sick, we can find a way to turn off our social responsibility and just say, I need a cure right now for me, for my animal, for my kid. And I think we have to recognize that it's not just the negative societal consequences of fueling antibiotic resistance, but antibiotics are not a zero risk category of drugs, right? When we take them, we can disrupt our, our microbiomes and we can end up with secondary infections like C. difficile infections, which are deadly. And so, yeah, I think we just need to think before we do. Lance, thank you so much. If people want to find out more about your work or this topic generally, where would you recommend they go? Uh, check out battlesuperbugs.com. That's our website. And then you know, we have a Twitter handle and a Facebook page with the same handle. Thank you, Lance. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Control-Alt-Meet. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeet.com to learn more.